Hello. Well, good evening. It's about 12 years ago this month, actually. I was working as a youth pastor at the time. My dad called. Now, when you're young, your parents calling might be a little bit annoying. But as you get older, you begin to cherish it. And sometimes it worries you a bit because you're not quite sure what news they'll have. So my dad called and he said, hey, I have something to tell you. Mom's got breast cancer, stage four. Uh, obviously, it's in her breast, it's in her hip. She's got a little bit in her jaw. Um, we're going to attack this thing real aggressively. But they've given her 18 months to live. And I remember I just had to, um, I was in my office and I just kind of had to sit for a second. Have you guys ever dealt with a loved one who had cancer before? Yeah. That's hard. So the, the treatment for my mom was to attack it with some radiation and with some chemotherapy and to just kind of see how, how that would, would happen, to see what could go on. As a family, we had braced ourselves for her to pass. But the chemotherapy worked, and the treatments took. And 12 years later, my mom still has cancer, but 18 months turned into 12 years. That's 10 and a half extra years. But that story doesn't always end that way, does it? You see, that story is, is something that each of us have probably our own version of, if we're honest. And if you haven't yet experienced the death of a loved one, certainly it's coming. Because that clock ticks for all of us. But imagine for a second that you're a doctor, you're an oncologist, a cancer doctor, okay? Someone who deals with blood, the ability to look at what's going on inside the body, give a diagnosis, and then a treatment to hopefully save a life, or at least prolong it so that more memories can be had, so that more, more grandchildren could be met, so that more holidays could be shared. I want to share some news with you tonight that truthfully is a bit of a diagnosis. Now, for some of you, you're going to hear what we're going to unpack in a second, and you're going to go, I've heard this before. It doesn't make it any less true of you now if you've heard it before, but it's still an important thing for us to wrestle with. The rest of us who maybe haven't heard what I want to share with you tonight, I want to ask a favor from you. I want to ask you to listen to these passages that we're going to read in Scripture with an open heart and with an open mind because, like we've studied this week, truth be told, this diagnosis exists as much for you as it does for those who believe it and have put their faith in this story. The, the truth that I want to unpack for us tonight, and it's kind of the last piece of the puzzle that we've been assembling all week, is the truth of sin. The truth of sin. Sin is this thing that ultimately gets in between us and God. 
It is a barrier that separates. Have you ever been held back from something that you desperately and deeply wanted? Like I remember in fourth grade, we were supposed to take a trip to the tide pools in Laguna Beach. And my parents totally would have signed the permission slip. But I was, I was trying out my hand at forgery, right? And so I forged my mom's signature on the permission slip. And they found out, which is crazy. Because in fourth grade, I thought I had awesome cursive, just like my old mom. But I got caught, so I didn't get to go on the trip. Uh, another example of that is my, my oldest son, uh, Mason, and my youngest son, Max. They have an affinity for food. You see, my sons love In-N-Out. But my daughters, my daughters, I love to share this story, so I apologize if you've heard it, but my daughters love Chick-fil-A, right? And I feel like we live in a world where we can divide this room up the middle and we can say we love In-N-Out or we love Chick-fil-A. And why there has to be a competition, I don't know, but this day, mom was out of town. She was teaching at a women's retreat, and I'm in charge of all four ducklings. Me, dad, Papa Duckling. It went terrible. Um, thanks for asking. <laughs> but I, I decided, you know what? The kids have been good. We're going to go to the happiest place on earth. We're going to go to Chick-fil-A, okay? And so I go, kids, get your shoes on, grab your things. We're going to head to Chick-fil-A. They've got a playground. You can order whatever you'd like. Like, this is just going to be an awesome, awesome afternoon. And so we go out, and the oldest one manages to get his shoes on, and he gets in the car. My oldest daughter, she gets her shoes on, gets in the car. My youngest daughter, miraculously, gets her shoes on and gets in the car. But my youngest son, Max, who allegedly has been smoking some of you at Gagaball this week, uh, he... Hey, I've got a microphone, all right? Just kidding. Um, my youngest son, Max, is nowhere to be found. I'm thinking, where's Max? Where is he? And just about the time I'm starting to process where the little buddy is, I see, the, uh, I see the handle that goes from the laundry room to the garage start to jiggle like in Jurassic Park when the Velociraptor breaks into the kitchen, right? You remember that? And I'm like, what is going to happen here? And just as I start to get out of the car to see what's going on, the door busts open, and Max has fistfuls of cars, his favorite toys, no shoes on. Now, this is the difference between moms and dads. A mom would have probably gotten out of the car, grabbed the toys, knelt down, tied his shoes, helped him in the car, given him his toys back, on with the day. It's time efficient. Everyone's happy. We're good to go. But that's not what a dad does. No. Dads say, let's figure this thing out. And so I stayed in the car. And I'm like, how's this kid going to put his shoes on with handfuls of toys, of cars? I'm genuinely excited. It's like a nature documentary at this point. I'm like fired up. Like, how on earth is this going to go down? And so I'm watching, and he walks up to his shoes, and he kind of puts his toe in, and then like he's putting out a cigarette, he just kind of stands there like this, and he gets it on. I'm like, this is amazing. Also, where did he learn that move? I don't think he smokes, but I don't know. Maybe. That'd be kind of old school. It's not like an e-cigarette. It's like an old cigarette for a four-year-old. Like, this isn't making sense. Next shoe, boom, same movement, gets on. Like, what's happening here? Now for the fun part. He gets to the car door, and in my head, I'm going, I should open the door for him. But then that other little thing on the other side of my shoulder goes, now let's watch and see. <laughs> and so I watch him with handfuls of toys, 
begin to reach at the side of our 2012 Honda Pilot, trying to open the car door with his knuckles like a caveman. And this is the only time I've said anything to him. I roll the window down and I go, hey, buddy, you got to put the cars down if you want to get in and, and go with us. And he goes, no, I got it. <laughs> okay, roll the window up, turn the stereo on. We're going we're gonna to be here for a while. You guys want to listen to a true crime podcast? Like, what do we want to do here? And so after moments, what seemed like ages, especially with Chick-fil-A on the other end of this journey, it felt like forever, he finally manages with his tiny little boy paws to crack that door open and get up into the car seat. But there's one last step. You can't, you can't buckle that seatbelt with a handful of cars. And even me, a tired old grumpy dad, could only watch this go on for so long before I had to intervene, which really just meant going like this and snapping the buckle for him. I sometimes wonder if there are journeys in life that God would like to take us on, but just like my four-year-old son Max, we're unwilling to let go of what is causing us from being able to go on this journey. As I shared earlier, we're going to talk about sin tonight. And in a very real spiritual sense, the truth of sin is that is the exact thing that gets in the way of you experiencing the fullness of God and the fullness of Christ and what scriptures would call life in the spirit. You can't get in the car. You can't go on this journey because you have something in the way. And in fact, it's not just like a little barrier block that's in your way. Scripture doesn't describe sin as a hurdle or a speed bump. Scripture describes sin as death and separation. Turn with me to John chapter 8. Let's have a look for ourselves. John chapter 8. Longest intro ever, but here we go. I really do want to make sure that we have as thorough of an understanding of what sin is before we head back to our cabins to talk about it. Because this is the truth. And as I said earlier, the truth of sin, it's not just true for people who believe in Scripture, who believe in Jesus. No, Scripture paints a worldview as if the belief in God is presupposed. Meaning there's no proving that has to be done for you to realize that sin is what's happening. John chapter 8 verse 1. I'm going to read it for you. And it goes like this. John 8 1. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, 
the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, no one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Pray with me. God, as we unpacked this very real, very serious, very grave spiritual diagnosis, would you give us the maturity to understand and to receive these passages tonight? Would you help us to grapple and wrestle with where we in our own lives fall short of your glory, where our imperfections, where our sins, our deeds, the times, God, where we fall so short of your character and your nature, the truth of who you are. Would you help us to walk out of this chapel tonight realizing the dire situation that each of us are in without your love in our lives? We thank you for tonight. Would you speak? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, we have a bit of a diagnosis that, that needs to be had. And just like a doctor would not be doing his or her job if they looked at an x-ray or an MRI and saw something wrong that shouldn't be there, something that could be terminal to your life and not tell you. Like what kind of doctor would go, oh man, this guy has cancer all throughout his body, but it would really ruin his day if I told him. So I'm going to withhold that information, right? That's the posture that I'm, I'm coming to you tonight. And so we pick up the story of John giving us an account of Jesus as he's on his journey. And as he's on his journey, he encounters yet another woman that he pauses to see, know, and love to begin the healing process in her own life. It tells us in verse 1 that Jesus is heading up to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around and sat down as he began to teach them. So Jesus is, is at church, essentially, and he's leading a Bible study. And as he does so, an incredibly and terribly disruptive scene breaks out. The pastors, the religious leaders, the, the Levites, the people who would have been leading church at that time, come in like a mob with a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, adultery, as is defined in Scripture, is you having a sexual relationship with someone that you are not in a covenant marriage with. A little mature, but I, I trust that you can hang with me. So what happens is these Pharisees somehow, some way, catch this woman in an inappropriate relationship with someone that she is not married to. Now, the Old Testament law was very clear with what you were supposed to do with such people. The Old Testament law said that you had the right to stone such people, to, to throw rocks at them, to punish them for their sin. Jesus, being of the Jewish tradition, would have known full well what the implications of this woman being caught in this act are. She was dead upon arrival. But he goes on to say, John does, in verse 6, that they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. You have to understand that this woman was being used like a pawn in the ministry of Jesus' life so that the religious elite of Jesus' day could have reason to condemn, condemn him. 
could have reason to execute him, could have reason to expel him from their presence. As Jesus' ministry and influence grew, so did hatred for him. And so Jesus is here in this predicament. He's like, man, I'm just trying to teach Bible study here. And you guys bring this poor woman in, and you want us to do what with her? To kill her? And they go, well, what do you think? I mean, if you're some great religious teacher, what, what is, doesn't the Old Testament say that this is what we're supposed to do? It tells us in verse 7 that when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus now turns this scenario towards the religious leaders and says, you're right. That is what the Old Testament law says to do. So have at it. And I'll tell you what, the one who gets to go first is the one who is sinless. The one who is without sin. The one who is perfect. Because you've caught this woman in sin, so it only makes sense for whoever among you is perfect can be the judge, the jury, and the executioner in this moment in time. Do you know what a sin is? We've kind of danced around this a little bit tonight. Here's the way I'd like to define sin for you. A sin is any thought, deed, word, attitude, or action that goes against God's perfect and trustworthy nature. A more simple way of putting it would be anytime we are unholy, anytime we are imperfect, that is a sin. The Bible talks a lot about sin. The Bible talks about sin from Genesis 3 until Revelation 22. Why? Because sin is quite literally the reason that Jesus comes to earth. Sin is this thing that everyone is guilty of, and as a result, it separates us from the love of God. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's talk about this a little more. Ephesians chapter 2. It's going to be in your New Testament. You're going to see the book of Romans. You're going to see the book of Galatians. And then you're going to land in Ephesians. Now, just to rabbit trail for a second. If at any point this week you have felt a hunger or desire to go deeper into God's word, to understand a little bit better what we've been talking about on your own time, maybe as you head home, maybe you want a collection of verses to begin to memorize, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 are beautiful. They tell the whole story that we've been unpacking this week in just those 10 verses, okay? We're going to read the first four. The Apostle Paul, the author of the book of Ephesians, is writing to a church named Ephesus. And as he rounds the corner, finishing up his first thought in the beginning part of his, his letter that he writes, he gets to this part. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Paul, Paul is speaking to all of us here. Paul is saying, hey, as for you, all of you, students, counselors, youth pastors, speaker, band, Hume staff, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Transgressions and sins. A transgression is when you do something that you know is wrong. Okay? So the times that you did something that you knew were wrong, and the times that you did something that you didn't know was wrong. Like as a kid, if you lied or you stole something. Paul is saying that those actions 
have actually caused you to experience death. Now, you may be looking at your hands and feeling your pulse and taking a deep breath, saying to yourself, I'm not dead. This guy's crazy. What's he talking about? Let's read on. It says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. He says, all of us, everybody, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, deserving of punishment. Think back to this woman in the book of John. What Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus is just like that woman who was caught in her sin, was deserving of a punishment. That's where those of us who have not yet received and believed in the gospel of Jesus very much exist and remain today. And this is a truth that supersedes your faith or belief in it. If you don't believe me, look at the state of the world today. About two weeks ago, a teenager walked into a school in Texas and killed 19 children and two adults. Tell me sin doesn't exist. Just a week before that, a man drove four hours into Buffalo, New York and shot up a grocery store fueled by racism, wiping out entire generations of people because he hated the color of their skin. Tell me sin doesn't exist. I think it's important for us to understand and to know what we're capable of. And the scriptures teach us, just rain, it's okay. What the scriptures teach us is that we are capable of evil. We are capable of sin. But the definition that scripture gives us of sin is not just to the extreme. It's like, like this concept of sin isn't just reserved for the Vladimir Putins and the Adolf Hitlers of the world, for the Neros in the first century that was torching Christians, for Pharaoh who chased down the people of Israel as they fleed from their slavery and bondage in Egypt. Like, yes, those are examples of sin. But Jesus ups the ante in the New Testament when he says, if you look at a woman with lustful intent in your heart, you too are guilty of adultery. When Jesus says, hey, if you look at your brother or sister with hatred, you too are guilty of murder. Jesus takes what used to be outward actions and, and, and begins to bring them back to the issue of the heart. In fact, there are places where the author of Psalms, David, says, surely I have been sinful from birth. What Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and the idea that the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus with is that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. Look at Romans chapter 3 verse 23. Let's look at the consequences of sin. Romans 3.23 tells us this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all. That's everybody. That's every human that has existed, does exist today, and will exist in time to come. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. Romans 6.23, a page over, tells us this. It tells us in the first half of that verse that the wages of sin is death. 
for the wages of sin is death. Any of you junior high, middle school students have a job yet? Yeah, what's your, no, what's your job? You work in a livestock auction? That's awesome. And how much do you get paid, if you don't mind me asking? <laughs> wow. Can I borrow some money? Um, I think it's Kingston, right? Yeah, where do you work, Kingston? Okay, and how much does he pay you? Yeah, dude, you need to work with her. She's getting paid way more. Right here. The cleaning company. How much you get paid? $5 an hour. Okay, we got a labor dispute here, but you're underage, so I don't know how much of a case you have. Uh, over here. You got to be a little louder. And what do you get paid? Man, a lot of fi- I'm paying my kids way too much money. Um, in the back with the blue shirt on. I can barely see it because of the lights, but real loud. Broadcast, so like on Twitch, like gaming and stuff? Church service. I mean, what do you get paid? Dude, I'm doing a seminar tomorrow on how to negotiate a fair wage, okay? Uh, You seem very eager. Red sweatshirt. You work at a, what? I thought you said staples. I was like, when did did 13-year-olds be allowed to get jobs? And what do you get paid at the stable? 15. Livestock's the way to go, guys. Who, Who are you pointing at? Jean jacket. Let's have it. You looked like the emoji, by the way, when you did this. Um, okay, go ahead. A snowboard shop. And? You look like you made that up, but we'll take it, okay? 12 an hour. All right. All right. Here's the deal. Romans 6.23, the first half just, it's all good. It's just light. Listen to my voice, okay? Listen, listen to me here. Focus on these words. Because like I shared in the beginning, I'm trying to give you a diagnosis. I'm trying to help you understand the spiritual state that you're in today if you have not yet received the love and grace of Jesus into your life. Focus on these words. What Paul writes to the church in Rome is that the wage that you're due after a long, hard day's work sinning, what you are owed as a result of this sin is death. Spiritual death. That could be translated into separation. That would mean this, that if you don't have Jesus in your life, where you exist today is in a state of spiritual death. There is no spiritual life within you. And if you retrace the steps, the things that we've been talking about this week, that means that truth be told, you need saving. The consequences for your sin are that you do not get to be in community. You don't get to be in relationship with God. I worked up at Hume Lake's other property years ago, and I ran a camp where students slept in tents. Some of you are sleeping in tents this week, yeah? So, stay with me here, okay? We love tents here, but just focus up, all right? Okay, here we go. So, at this camp, because everyone slept in tents, we had to have a different set of rules than the other camps where they had cabins with wood and metal and doors. And one of the most primary and most important rules that we had at this camp was that you can't take food into your tent at night because we had a lot of animals, same as here. And so there's squirrels, 
there's mice, there's bears. Focus on the bears part. So I had a, I had a group of students, I had a group of students that, that disregarded this rule that was long-standing. Way before I got there, this was a rule. And so they took their food into their tent at the beginning of the week, failing to realize that some of the food that they had brought into their tent needed to be refrigerated. Well, as you notice, when you're in the mountains, it can get real warm during the day. And when you're in a tent, there's no insulation. There's nothing keeping that heat in or out. You're subject to whatever the temperature is outside, plus or minus a little bit of shade, okay? So it's now Thursday, and these kids have just been munching on like gogurt and snacks and all these things that should have been refrigerated. And in the middle of the night, one of them got real sick. And so he goes outside the tent, and he, he throws up everywhere. Well, there's this thing in human nature... Some of you may have it, I certainly do, that if I see or hear or smell someone else throw up, guess what I'm doing? I'm throwing up. And so before you know it, this one kid sets off a domino effect where the rest of the cabin is now outside of their tent just throwing up everywhere. But wait, there's more. So their youth pastor consoles them, gives them some Tums for their little tummies. They get some water. They ah, get back into their sleeping bags. <sighs> Just as they're about to fall asleep, what do their little ears hear? The sound of a massive black bear eating their throw-up outside of the tent. Now, this is a true but crazy story. Here's what I would hate to happen. Right here. What I would hate to have happen is you hear this story, but you don't hear why I share it with you. I share it with you because what those students experienced that day was the consequences for their actions. Sin works in an identical but exponentially more grave way. The consequences... For our sin is separation from God. Separation from the Father. Psalms chapter 5 verse 4. I'll read this for you. You don't have to turn there. Psalms chapter 5 verse 4 tells us about God's perfect and trustworthy nature. It says, For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness or sinfulness. With you, evil sinful people are not welcome. They're not welcome. So if you've been tracking with me, the diagnosis is that if you don't have Jesus in your life, sin has separated and killed your soul. Separated and killed your soul. That's where you exist today. And this is true of everybody. And so you might be sitting there going like, well, what's the, come on, man. Like, imagine if that doctor on that day had told my mom, you have cancer. I have another appointment. I will call you in a couple weeks. We'll see you later. And walked out of the room. My dad, who's kind of an aggressive, intense guy, probably would have not let that happen, right? 
Imagine yourself in those shoes. You're telling me that I have a terminal illness and you're not going to give me a remedy for the terminal illness. What can be done about this? Well, think back to John chapter 8, that story that we read. Look at what happens in this passage that we've been unpacking. In John 8, something crazy is revealed to us about the nature of God. And in fact, I heard someone over here ask this question a second ago. Jesus looks at the crowd, and when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. Why? Because age usually begets wisdom. These old religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was communicating, and they went, I am sinful. I am not the one who's going to throw a stone. And one by one by one, they walked away until who was left? Work with me here. Who was left? Jesus and the woman. Well, now we know the woman was in sin. So why was Jesus there? Because he was without sin. In fact, Jesus wasn't just without sin, but but the Jesus who we learned last night, sees, knows, and loves us, cares for this woman in her sinful state. It says, at this, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Jesus doesn't just say this next part to her. The word tells us, the Bible reads, that he declared declared this to her. That he declares this over her life. That he speaks this truth to this woman. And he says, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God in human form. The sinless, perfect lamb who is without blemish. Who walked the earth to remove that death and that barrier that kept us from God, frees in this moment this woman from that condemnation because he alone is worthy and he alone has the power to do so. And so where does that leave us? That leaves each of us here in this room tonight who don't have a relationship with Jesus in desperate need of him. You see the second half of that verse in Romans 6 that we read a minute ago says that the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What that means is this. There is no one who has ever existed that exists today or will exist thereafter who is perfect. We know this to be true Because if it were the case, Jesus would not have had to come and to die. We know that we, on our own, have no power to save ourselves. For my birthday this last year, my wife bought me a little turtle. A tortoise. His name was Gil. Nope. It gets worse. And I was up here for winter camp, and my wife called, and she says, hey, I got bad news. There's a funny smell coming from your office. I think the turtle has died. I said, well, can you go in there and check? She goes, yes. So she goes in, she looks, and sure enough, baking under its heat lamp is my sweet little tortoise gill. 
how crazy would it have been for me to give him some new lettuce or to paint his shell green again? Because at this point it was like brown and moldy. Like how crazy would it have been for me to continue pretending like my precious little pet turtle was alive? Gil didn't need water. Gil didn't need lettuce. Gil didn't need time outside in the sun. He was dead. What Gil needed was a resurrection. The same thing is true of each of us in this room who do not yet have the love of Jesus in our lives. You don't need to go to church more. You don't need to serve more people. You don't need to start tithing. You don't need to read the Bible. What you need is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The sin-conquering, grave-busting, holy goodness of God who 2,000 years ago came down from heaven to earth to provide a way for that spiritual death that I have diagnosed us with tonight to be made new. As you guys leave chapel tonight, I want you to ponder for a second two things. First, I want you to ponder, have you put your faith in Jesus? Like between now and when we come back into this chapel tomorrow night, I want you to ask yourself, I want you to pray through it. Examine your own heart, mind, and soul. Have you put your faith in Jesus? That's the first thing. Second, do you believe sin to be real? Because in order for us to need saving, in order for me to get to a place where I know that I need to be saved, I have to first come to grips with the fact that I need saving in the first place. And and what I suppose I'm trying to communicate to us tonight is, do you know that you need saving? Do you know that sin has separated you from God? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for tonight. What a hard truth this is to tell a room full of amazing students, counselors, youth pastors, and Hume Lake employees. But the hardness and the harshness of this reality can't keep us from being bold with the truth that without you, we are dead and separated. Lord, what hope do we have? Where can we turn? Who can we look to? The scriptures say you and you alone. But it's impossible for us to to look to you for saving if we first don't see the need for salvation in the first place. And in order for us to know that we need saving, we have to come to grips with the fact that we're sinful, that we are imperfect, that we are unholy. For the next day, God, would you help us to wrestle with that truth? Maybe to ask questions to someone we trust. Maybe to pray, to journal, to ponder, to examine the place of you in our lives. Thank you that there's hope. It's taken every cell in my body not finish this story. But tomorrow night, God, pray that you'd move in this place. We love you so much. Amen. Amen. Give it up for Corey, you guys. Hold on. No, no, no. Don't leave yet. Don't leave yet. Don't leave yet. You guys are going to be dismissed in just a second to go to cabin time. And in cabin time, it's important that you guys pose those questions that Corey just posed to you.